Uh, hey, I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, it seems like it just, we're in the holidays and it just, I'm, I'm still recovering from like a hangover from all the Halloween candy and now we've got Thanksgiving and today's the first day of Advent, right? Uh, it just goes uh, so fast in this season and it just amazes me uh, how it seems to come all together so quickly. The lawyer and social critic and writer William Stringfellow once noted, in the United States, Advent is no longer really noticed, much less observed. The commercial acceleration whereby the promotion of Christmas begins even before there's an opportunity to enjoy Halloween is the reason for the vanishment of Advent. And so everything kind of gets compressed during this time, and, and I'm, uh, I, I'm surprised. It's like one minute we're like walking around looking like axe murderers, and, uh, and the next minute we're seeing Hark the Herald Angels, and it's just a strange time. And uh, I want to share with you a very special object you can buy, actually, uh, that I think comes from this strange um, kind of like compression of everything. Uh, I give you the um, Santa skeleton shirt. Yeah, wow, right? Just wow. And, and of course, there's some cynics out there that are saying, I've known that, you know, uh, Christmas and Halloween, can, you know, go together uh, for a long time because, you know, as soon as I invite my in-laws over for the, for the holiday seasons, all hell breaks loose. So... <laughs> All right, all right. Uh, yeah, that was, that was so, so. Uh, I mean, there are people that like this kind of stuff where it all gets kind of jumbled together. There's some people that just like the holidays. I just love the holidays. This is, yeah, mix it together, whatever, you know. Uh, the nightmare before Christmas and all that. And, uh, you know, that's fine. Some people are into that. They're more sentimental. Some of you are cynics. But, but the real danger in all of this is that we can miss what the whole point of Advent is about. So this morning, to better understand what we mean by Advent, the arrival of Christ, what, it's, what, it, what it means and what it's really about, I'm going to do something a little different. I want to uh, look at two ways Christmas actually works off themes that you might associate more with Halloween than with, than with Christmas. And it does it in ways that are very different than the way that our market-driven culture suggests. And both of these are found in uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. So if you haven't already, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. And there we read this. Christ Jesus, who though existing in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. So the first way in which Christmas is actually kind of like Halloween is that God comes in a disguise. God is, comes in human form. Morphe is the word there. And there's probably not a better text than Philippians chapter 2 that really demonstrates this. It talks about the one who is equal with God and then stripping away all of the things that might reveal that unique uh, equality with God in order to come in the form of a person, uh, a human person. This is the second person of the Trinity coming in human flesh. And as we sing with Hark the Herald Angels, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. You know, throughout history, Christians have marveled at this notion that the omnipotent, eternal, uh, un unchanging uh, creator of the universe took on human flesh. Uh, I was in Turkey about three years ago, and I visited the Cora Church. 
Cora means space, and it was originally a monastery in the 4th century outside of Constantinople. And then as Constantinople grew, it eventually became enveloped in the city. And uh, the Cora church kept playing with this idea of space. Cora means space. It meant the space of the countryside, but now they're within a city. And so when they redid the frescoes and the mosaics there, they focused in on the incredible thing that the God who cannot be contained, who made everything, the God who is uh, omnipresent was somehow contained in a space, in the space of a womb. And actually, you can see uh, down here, the angels in the bottom picture are in amazement. And it actually says in Greek right here, this, uh, this Greek right here, Mary, it says, container of the uncontainable. 16th century English scholar Lancelot Andrews marveled verbum infans, and all of you who know Latin know exactly what he meant. He meant the word verbum infans, where we get our word infant, which means unable to speak. The word that created everything, the word of all words, showed up speechless in an infant. And then more recently, uh, American poet Lucy Shaw reflects on the shocking truth of the incarnation with her poem, Kenosis. And she writes, uh, In sleep his infant mouth works in and out. He is so new, his silk skin has not yet, and then it cut off somehow, but has not yet been roughed by plain and wooden beam, nor so far has he had to deal with human doubt. His only memories float from fluid space, so new he has not pounded nails, hung a door, broken bread, felt rebuffed, bent to the lash, wept for the sad heart of the human race. You know, unlike in iconography where we often see Jesus looking like a little king on Mary's lap like it's a throne, you know, Lucy Shaw looks at the infant Jesus who is there and just like a baby does, kind of the mouth going in and out as, as the baby is sleeping, dreaming of a human breast. And she's amazed at this, this picture that God himself would come in this kind of deep uh, vulnerability. Uh, and and this has amazed Christians throughout the ages, that, that God would come in such a fragile way, uh, that God would come nestled within a mother's warmth and love. And of course, if you really understand how shocking this is, if you just allow your mind to imagine for five hot seconds, the immediate question is why? Why did God do this? For what necessity and for what reason did God, since he's omnipotent, take upon himself the humiliation and the weakness of human flesh? That is the question of Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. Well, in her poem, Lucy Shaw actually intimates the reason when she says that this tender, fragile infant skin has yet to be, quote, roughed by plain and wooden beam. She's referring not only to his occupation as a carpenter, but his ultimate direction to the cross. He will someday have a sad heart for the human race. So why did God come in disguise? Why did God change his form and come as a human being? Again, Philippians tells us he came to serve and he came to suffer. He dressed appropriately for what he came to do. Christ Jesus, who though existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made, born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. He came dressed to serve and to surrender his life 
for us. It was a rescue operation. That's why he came. It was a rescue operation. Few people have grabbed the global imagination as Diana, Princess of Wales, has. Her 1997 funeral was viewed by two billion people. In fact, there was a movie that just came out this month, like 25 years later, about her life. What is it that captured our imagination? Why are people around the globe fascinated with Diana? What was it that struck us with her? Was there such, why was there such an incredible public outcrying at her death? Fleming Rutledge writes, The various talking heads have spoke of her beauty, her accessibility, her modernity, her vulnerability. They're all correct as far as they went. But the combination that made Diana exceptional was that in the Princess of Wales, majesty stooped. That was the key to her power. The symbolism of Diana was this. She was seen as one who was willing to lay aside her princely prerogatives, or princessly prerogatives, we should say, to come alongside those who were downtrodden. And here we have her dressed in a bomb-out suit when she was in, I think, Angola, trying to get some help there because people were dying from stepping on mines. Princess Diana laid aside her royal prerogatives so that people could be saved. And Christmas is about how majesty stooped in the most unprecedented scale. Majesty stooped in the most unprecedented scale. The one who created everything, the eternal word, stooped and became flesh, John 1. The one who one day all nations will stand before in judgment came in human flesh, Matthew 25. This is the one whose face is like the sun shining in brilliance, Revelation 1 tells us. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6 tells us. This is the one who lays aside all glory. This is the one who lays aside all infinite might and inexhaustible beauty and takes the form of a humble, suffering servant for a rescue operation. Our rescue operation. In short, you can't understand Christmas if you don't understand the cross. And this is incredibly important that we don't detach Christmas from the cross because that is why he came. Cross is always overshadowing Christmas. We happen to have the advantage of having a Christmas stained glass window theme. And I want you to notice something. I spent a lot of time looking at this, by the way, because I, I love art. I teach art class. But I want you to notice something here. Overshadowing the angels and their announcement, up here at the top, you'll see there is a cross. The stained glass got it right. You can't have Christmas without the cross. It was absolutely necessary for Christ to come. If humanity was to have a way out of her predicament, it was absolutely necessary that he came. Paul says in Galatians 3.21, if, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have been come, come through the law. Paul's saying if there was a way in which God could have done something where we could have saved ourselves, he would have done it. Or again, in Romans 8.30, he says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Or <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, speaking of the necessity of the God-man, writes this, Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. Then that person could help us. 
He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was human. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. We cannot share in God's dying unless God dies. And he cannot die except by being a human. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. Said more simply, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he was made sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is incredibly important to remember, that, this, the, that, that Christmas is the beginning of a rescue. It's the beginning of a rescue operation. It's, it's not only that, it's a necessary rescue operation, as rescue operations are. Everything's at stake. And so why did he come, not only as a servant, but why did he come on the cross? Why did he wear our sin? He did it for us. And it's important for us to look for a second at what he was wearing. He wore the most hideous and disturbing outfit of all time. Isaiah 53 reminds us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here's what I'm doing. I'm sorry. I'm breaking the romanticism of Christmas. That's what I'm doing this morning. Let me just be very plain about it. It's okay. Believe me, I'm very nostalgic. I cry at commercials. Okay, I like puppies. We have some cats. I've even grown to like them. It's okay. But the danger in falling into the romanticism is we don't see the hard reality behind Christmas. Because Christmas is not just some nice idea that there's going to be peace and comfort and let's all have goodwill. It's about God stepping in and doing something we could not do for ourselves. That we had no other recourse that, and it was drastic. And if we think that it was just a nice gesture, we will not see what it cost God. We'll minimize that. We'll say, oh, it was just a nice thing, that nice expression. It wasn't a nice expression. It is the only hope for the human race. And if Christ didn't come, if Christmas didn't happen, we would be in deep trouble. So Christmas is not a romantic moment, a Hallmark card. It's more like Halloween. It's God stepping in to do something painful and horrific and incredibly costly, yet absolutely necessary, without which we would have no other recourse. God had to enter into the darkness of humanity's vileness and sin and pride and lust and murderous hate, into the very darkness and disturbing pit of evil, and take it upon himself and drink the cup to the full. Christmas is more like Halloween than our Hallmark cards. It was about God stripping off those royal robes and taking on nakedness and vulnerability and humility and then the quantitative and qualitative darkness that has existed throughout time with every sin and every dark action that he descended, as the creed tells us, into hell. And he did that for us. And if this is true, if Christmas at its core is not about eggnog and ham, or whatever our market is giving us, but it's about God coming in human flesh to take care of sin, to take the punishment of sin in our stead so that we might be restored. Where does that leave us this Advent season? Where does that leave us? How should we approach Christmas? What should be our response? And of course, I want to start off by saying, if you are not a Christian, the only appropriate response when somebody does something so radical and sacrificial in order to give you a gift is to receive it. Christmas is about what God has done on our behalf through Christ. 
He's lived the life we should have lived. He's died the penalty that we should have paid, and he's done that for us. And so we can be reconciled to God. And if you've never received Christ and said, thank you for what you've done, this could be your first real Christmas where you get it. And I would love for that to be the case for you. In the back, we have another stained glass. You can't see it. Don't try to look. But it's basically Jesus welcoming the little children. And Jesus says, these are like the king. Everyone who's a part of the kingdom of God, they have to become like a little child. And what is the mark of a little child? Little children know they need help. And they're unafraid to receive. Like, well, if I, you know, they're, they're not like, well, I don't know. They're not too proud. No, I need help. Please. I like that it's pointing out to the park. And the message is, come. But come as a little child. Come as a little child to see the God who came as a little child. And then you'll get it. Beautiful. The architecture in this church is just preaching the gospel. I love that. But what if you're a Christian, which I'm looking out and I see there's many Christians here today. How should we respond to this? How do we work out our salvation? What do we do? Well, it's right here in the text. Therefore, my beloved friends, therefore, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you in order to fulfill his good purpose. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work at it. Now, as Protestants that believe in grace and salvation as a gift, this makes us nervous, this work language. But we need to remember that work is not the same thing as earning. As Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, and earning is an attitude, but effort is an action. There's three senses of salvation you'll find in the Bible. There's the past tense. We were saved. This is justification. This is the beginning of the Christian life when we ask God to forgive us on behalf of Christ. We're adopted in Christ's family, and we're given Christ's perfect record of a righteous life. It's called justification. It's a big, I'm a theologian. I love these names, okay? Justification. But Paul now is speaking in the present tense. Work out your salvation. This is, we are being saved. This is the process whereby we are being transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And of course, there's the future tense, the day in which the power of sin will be completely removed. Sin will be removed from our bodies. They'll be completely redeemed. And one day we'll be glorified. That's called glorification. So Paul here is saying to the Christians at Philippi, if you realize the great lengths and the sacrifice that Christ went through, it should result in us taking things very serious with fear and trembling. I give you the Zvetkamertje. Uh, that's like a diminutive in Dutch, but it just means a sweat room, a little sweat room technically because there's a diminutive. But this is at Leiden University. I've been to the sweat room. Basically in the Netherlands, it's the worst doctoral defense you can ever have to go through. I know I went through one because you can actually fail, okay? It's not like a, a rubber stamp. And after you give your dissertation defense, you go into this place, one of these things, and you, you sweat it out. There's much fear and trembling, okay, that takes place in the Zvet Kamarcha. And, uh, and actually, it all started with people scratching on the tables out of nervousness, and pretty soon people started writing on the walls. And today you can go in there, you can even see where Mel, uh, Nelson Mandela, who got an honorary doctorate, he actually faked like he was sweating it out, like, come on, dude, it's an honorary doctorate. But anyways, <laughs> why do you have... Why do you have uh, uh, fear and trembling, you have it because you know something is at stake. Christians, we need to realize something is at stake this Advent season. We need to realize something is at stake. If Christmas at its core is a story 
of the serious great lengths and painful depths that Christ would go through in obedience to Father to deal with sin in our lives, to give us a new life, are we taking that new life serious? That is the question. And so with that, what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about what it means to take our salvation serious in terms of one particular issue, and that is the issue of ongoing sin in our lives. See, implicit in the idea of working out, salvation, working out our salvation is the idea that though the power of sin has been broken, if you're a Christian, sin still resides in us as long as we are in this life. Um, Romans 6 to 8, just take a little journey through that section of Romans. And you see in Romans 6, Paul says that uh, when we become Christians, we are freed from the penalty of sin and we're freed from sin being our master. Sin is no longer our master, Romans 6.14. But then if you go into Romans 7, lo and behold, sin is still present in our members. It is still there. There's still a, there's still a force within us. The Bible calls us the old man or uh, the flesh. It uses these languages to talk about an old way in which sin was dominating our lives that we can slip into that. Paul says, I don't understand my actions. I don't do what I want to do. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good, and it's no longer technically I who am doing it, but it's sin that's dwelling within me that is causing this. That's Romans 7, 15 to 17. So we're still tempted to live under the control of sin. But then we reach Romans 8. This is how we deal with this situation Therefore, my brothers and sisters, we have an obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, that word there is mortify, put to death the deeds of the body, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What Paul is saying here is that there's still sin present in the life of a Christian. It doesn't control him, but it wants to. It wants to move. It's like this, it's, it's indwelling sin. And Paul is saying that Every single Christian is in a zero-sum game struggle with sin. In other words, it's either going to be us or sin. Another Halloween theme there, right? There's a big fight going on. It's us or sin. And the question is then, who is going to win? The only way you're going to win, you are going to have to kill sin. That's in the Bible. So this Christmas, not only do we look at God who's in disguise, but I want to look at all of you and say, you need to go on a killing spree. Okay? I've been reading, me and my wife have been reading this lovely little book. Lovely is the wrong word. It's like rocking little book by John Owen, who's a Puritan. It's called The Mortification of Sin. That's mortification. That's a great word. It just means the killing of sin, straight from the Bible, right? And he asks, do you mortify? Do you kill it? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I want to end, and this is, this is for my fellow Christians, with four key points about what it means to be mortifying sin, killing sin, taking sin serious during this Advent season. By the way, I want to recommend that little book, too, because J.I. Packard says it's the most influential book he's ever read. Okay, if you know who J.I. Packard is. I mean, he writes this introduction says, this book is the most influential book I've ever read. It's like, wow, okay. Four points. Number one. Mortification or killing sin is for Christians. Owen says it's the saddest thing when you see somebody who's not a Christian attempting to mortify sin because you haven't been given the power of the Holy Spirit to do that activity. It's not something we do on our own. Um, 
This is the saddest warfare that any poor creature can engage in. A soul under the power of conviction is pressed to fight against sin, but has not strength to conquer it. Number two, it is daily. Indwelling sin always abides whilst we are in this world, therefore it's always to be mortified. To become a Christian doesn't mean that sin is gone. It means that we have a daily activity. And by the way, every morning you wake up, this is super helpful after reading this book. Every morning I wake up, I'm like, okay, sin's coming. It's not like, you know, you kind of wake up, you're like, all right, you know, I'll just get my coffee. All things No, you have an enemy that's stalking you every day, coming your way. And so uh, it's daily. Number three, it is by the Spirit. The principal efficient cause of the performance of this duty is the Spirit. Mortification from a self-strength carried on by way of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Me and my wife had been doing the California missions, and, and at one of the missions, they had these little flatulation whips and stuff, and that is not going to work. You need the Holy Spirit. We cannot create, and we can't beat sin on our own. We need the Holy Spirit's power. And then finally, and this is the good news, mortification is a pathway to spiritual vitality. Sin weakens the soul, deprives it of its strength, but mortification prunes all the graces of God and makes room for them and our hearts to grow. It causes our hearts to bound in grace. Owen uses this example of like a tree that has all these branches. And some of them are dead. It's like the only way you're going to get new life is you got to start trimming those branches. Trimming those branches. And so the question here is, what are the branches that are clogging up our lives? The little sins that we're just overlooking. Advent is the season for trimming as we await the arrival of the one who came to deal with sin once and for all. So, we've seen two ways Christmas actually brings back Halloween themes. God comes in disguise, and as I said, Christians are to be killers, daily killers of sin, which is stalking us. Um, And I've compared Christmas to Halloween because we so easily romanticize Christmas that we don't really see that it's actually this time within church history where Christians would say, we need to get our hearts in the right place. We need to enter in a place with fear and trembling and very serious about the fact that we are going to celebrate our Lord's arrival. And we need to take a look at our own lives and examine our lives, and we need to become serious about fighting sin. And uh, I think the thing that... that uh, the thing that really uh, is amazing is when you start looking at the rescue operation, the absolute necessity it was for God to come in Jesus and the cost it was, that will then motivate you to take sin serious. Um, so if you're not a Christian, simple question, do you see that he did this for you? Did it ever cross your mind that God might have come in human flesh in order to make you perfect and complete in order to live a life you could never live, in order to die a death that we all deserve to die apart from God in our sin, that he did that so that you can have freedom and life and know God. Do you see the cost? Do you realize he did that for you? And then if you're a Christian, are you working out your salvation? Are you taking sin serious? Are you daily killing sin? Do you see it as the pathway to life? 
not as some burden, not as something oh, like, oh, I can't keep my sins. You know, the thing about like, you know, when you go to an AA meeting, everybody knows like we went that route. It's hard. It's painful. It's terrible. We're just glad to be free of this crap. And we want to do everything we can every day to recognize that we could fall back into this. Every single Christian is in that place with sin. And the freedom, there is freedom in our lives we have yet to experience because we're hanging on to little stupid sins. There's freedom in your life and in my life we have yet to experience. This Advent season, let's go on a killing spree. Let's get serious about it. And as we do, God is going to be transforming us and our church is going to come together and we're going to see God working in our midst because God loves to use a clean vessel and he wants to clean us and use us for his kingdom. So are you putting to death the old way of life? Are you killing sin? Or do you think you're doing okay and you're just coasting into the kingdom? Work out your salvation for it is God who is at work in and through us to do his good will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great cost that you paid for us. We thank you for this Christmas season where we're reminded that you entered into this sin-sick, weary world in order to bring us life, that you dove into uh, a world in need. You stooped and you came down and you entered this world in order that we might have new life, we might have hope. And Lord, we want to pray that this season we will take serious what you did, and that we will allow that to capture our hearts and our imagination, that we'll be moved in new ways, and we will do something about it as well. We'll be very serious in cooperating with your Holy Spirit and coming to see afresh, Lord, that life is found in you, Jesus, knowing you, walking with you, being transformed in your likeness. And it's in your name that we pray.